this is just going to be an introduction to apologetics, so it's going to be fairly basic, and it's going to last about seven weeks. Um, we've got some flexibility, but not too much on that, because we try to set the schedule ahead of time, so if I get long-winded, you're just going to lose out, and I apologize for that. Um, let's first talk about what apologetics is. Um, apologetics uh, it seems like a weird word to use. It looks like the word apology, and it is indeed where we get the word apology from, but we're not telling the world that we're sorry that we exist, right? We're not saying sorry that Christians have any sort of place in society at all, um, but rather what it means is a defense, um, and it comes from a Greek word, apologia, which is used in Scripture, at least our Scriptures, in one particular place, and it, it simply means defense. We're defending um, what I'm going to say is we're defending the truth. We're not just defending the faith, but we're defending the truth. And, and you'll see what I mean and why I say it that way here in a bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the place where it's found is 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 14 through 17. Um, that's very small, but you guys have Bibles, so it's big enough for me to read, and I, it's 1 Peter 3. You can, you can find this passage there. And there Peter writes that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake— you will be blessed. Um, notice the nice beatitude there. Uh, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that is an apologia, uh, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so what Peter says here is, listen, the world that we live in isn't going to always be pretty. It's not going to always be nice. And you, you will suffer sometimes in the world. And when you suffer, you need to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. So what we, what we would say is... <clears throat> That when people ask you to defend your beliefs, when they have um, problems with the Christian faith or they look at you and they, they have questions for you, you should be prepared to answer them. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be prepared to answer everything, right? Like, you, if you happen to be an unfortunate soul who runs into some sort of Christian, or not Christian, uh, but uh, a moralist philosopher who teaches at Delta or something like that, that could be the longest afternoon of your life. And you don't need to, you don't need to be concerned about answering every single problem that he brings up, right? When he brings up Immanuel Kant and your eyes start to roll back in your head, it's okay. You don't need to have an answer for every person on everything, um, but what Peter's striving for is that we have something. Like, we, we should be able to do the best we can with the things that God has given us to provide an answer for the hope that is in us. Now, sometimes this is actually a positive thing. The people who are asking are literally asking about the hope that's in us. They see that there's hope in us. They see that in, in going through difficult times, in dealing with loss and dealing with death, Christians ought to handle themselves differently. And just in the, the ways of the world in particular, Christians ought to handle themselves differently. And, and so people might ask in a very positive light, why is it that, that you all are like this? Why do you handle yourselves this way? And in that sense, it's positive. But even from the context of First Peter, we realize that a lot of this is very negative. 
Um, and that it's, it's really come from an accusatory sort of standpoint, that people are, in that passage, he talks about you, you'll be slandered, um, you'll suffer for doing what is right. The idea is that people will misunderstand, they will purposely slander you, and that you should have everything you can to answer to them why that is slander and why they're misunderstanding our faith. So apologetics is simply um, the defense of, and I put down here your belief, but if I went back, I would probably change that to um, defending the truth. And, and again, we're going to kind of cover why it should be defending the truth and not just your beliefs. And so let's talk then about why, why we're going to study apologetics, why it's important to study apologetics. The first and most obvious part is to defend. This is, I mean, number one is Peter seems to insist that we do this, right? That we are capable of doing this. So that's kind of the first bit. But, but within that imperative from Peter, um, we do it because we want to defend the truth. The, the truth of the Christian gospel, the truth of the witness of Scripture is always going to be under attack. It's not like all of a sudden with postmodernism now, the truth was, is now under attack the way it wasn't, you know, 45, 50, 180, 300 years ago. The truth has always been under attack. Um, Peter, Peter's admonition to defend the truth is no different today than it was in any of the other ages of the church. So it's not that things are more necessary now, it's just that it's always been necessary, and so we need to have these, we need to be able to, as best we can, hear what's going on in the world, hear the problems that people have, hear what people are saying, and then give a defense for the Christian hope. On top of that, uh, we, we want to persuade people. We want them to not only know what is true, but to come to embrace the truth. And on top of that, it should be an encouragement. And I think that this is sort of lost. And we're going to go through each one of these and kind of talk our way through them. So the first one we want to talk about is, is defend. We study apologetics to defend. And Christians have long defended the faith against misunderstanding. There are certain people who simply misunderstand what the church has said. Like, they're, they're, they don't mean bad things necessarily. They're not. misrepresenting. They, they've just been taught poorly. And even people out in the world are, are still taught what Christianity is. And a lot of them pick up their images of Christianity from the most people who claim to be Christians out in the world. And those are oftentimes not the best people to pick up what Christianity is from. Um, on top of that, they're told by people who don't like Christianity is literally just misunderstanding. And we want to correct that. Sometimes it is literal slander. People know better. They, they know what, is, what Christianity says, and, and they'll, just, they'll just completely go against what we say we're saying, and they will slander us. We're, you see this, um, didn't mean to mention it, but in the Supreme Court case that just got decided about, and I believe this one was a, web, it's always in Colorado. I don't know what Colorado's problem is. Um, but it was a web designer this time, the Supreme Court decision. And the Supreme Court, uh, basically, I think it was a 6-3 ruling that said, she doesn't have to design things that go against her conscience. Not the media is reporting that as though the majority of the Supreme Court said she doesn't have to serve homosexual people, 
which is not only not what the case was about, but that was already settled back in Colorado. Do that. I, I, sir, anyone who comes in and wants, if they're, I don't, I don't like, like, make the web design for you, but it can't be something that I find offensive or that, that goes against my conscience. Not only is the media reporting it wrong, even in the dissent, Judge Sotomayor, like, must have, I, there's no way for me to think that she didn't purposely um, write her dissent in such a way that it was, it was basically saying the court is now allowing um, defamation of homosexual people. Well, or not defamation, that's not the right word, I'm not a lawyer, but um, allowing Christians to not serve homosexual people. That's not ever what was going on. So this is just outright slander. Like, it's, it's either laziness because people aren't reading what the majority opinion was, reading even what the case was, in, in the, frankly, how else to think about that when it comes to a Supreme Court judge other than it being slander. Like, that just seems like that's where we'd have to fall. But nevertheless, um, so we, we have to do both things. And we ought to work hard to set the record straight. And so people, whether it's stuff like the web designer in Colorado, which is a minor thing compared to the, the faith once and for all handed to the saints, when people misunderstand these things, we ought to do it. And, and a good case of misunderstanding that I had in mind um, would be something like Okay? And they don't mean, they don't, they're not trying to misrepresent what we believe, but if they grew up in a Muslim context, they were just told this. This is what they have been instructed. And so they don't think that, it, that this is just true. And if they came up to you and they said, hey, you believe in three gods, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, um, they, they don't think that they're, they're like, they expect for you to say, yes, yeah, we believe in three gods. And so sometimes it's just misunderstanding that we need to get around as well. We, we do this all the time. Um, early on, Justin's dialogue with Trifo was one of the earliest works written like this that we have. There's probably other conversations that people had that were like this. Um, but in the early church, he was probably just a um, fictional character who was a Jew. And at this time, the church and, and Judaism were still sort of linked. This was early, mid-second century. And so um, Justin is trying to write to clarify Christianity's position vis-a-vis -vis the Old Testament and, and Judaism. And this is a work that does that. Augustine's City of God was a really important work in this sense. And City of God eventually becomes a philosophy of, of how the the entire beginning of the book is you might have 99 problems, but Christians ain't one of them. And so he basically is just saying the Christianity did not lead to the downfall of Rome. That's not, that's not our problem. And so he's, he's doing exactly what we've talked about. Early on in the church, um, people thought that Christians were incestuous. Why might that be? Yeah, when you're calling your wife sister, right? It's not like this isn't the 1970s where, where that just, you know, you just called everybody brother and sister, and that was how no one did that. You only called family members brother and sister. And so when you're calling your wife sister, and some Greek guy's walking down the street, and he's like, 
Like this is, they must be, they must be Christians because that's what Christians do and it's really weird. And, and they also thought that Christians were cannibals because there was no open demonstration. There were, I'm sure some places did it openly, but Chrysostom talks about we do communion behind closed doors. But if, if they go behind closed doors to eat the flesh and drink the blood, right? So the rumor starts that they're cannibals. Well, they have to defend those misunderstandings against people. So it's part of what we've done. Um, and it's not just our faith. Uh, the truth must be defended against lies as well. And so we see part of that coming up here in a bit where Paul is going to, to be arguing for the truth of the gospel and not just to defend it. But defense is part of it. So we always want to work on, on defending. The second thing we want to do, though, is we also want to persuade people. Um, and this is quite an important bit of what apologetics is meant to do. Um, Christians oftentimes use this sense of defending the truth or defending the faith as a way to evangelize people. Um, and so it, it was a way to, if you're going to clarify what Christianity believes, part and parcel of that is just offering to bring people into the faith, right? It, it, it's a very sort of easy procedure to use. Um, we get something like this from the book of Acts. And Acts 17 is Paul... Um, in the Areopagus, we're going we're gonna to read the whole passage. It's, it's decently long, so bear with me. Um, but we'll read the passage, and you'll see how he is actually defending the truth against what he sees around him. And I think it's a work of apologetics. So Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took turn, or excuse me, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, stop there for a second. So what Paul has done is Paul has walked around Athens and he's seen all these little idol shops and his spirit's provoked within him. And he starts talking to people about Jesus. And you'll notice what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, I've, I've noticed these objects, these things that you worship, and one of them had this, this thing to the unknown God. And so what Paul is seeing is people who do not know the truth. They're not attacking Christianity, by the way. Some of them are. By calling him a babbler, they're, they're insulting him. So they're, they're, kind of, they're kind of attacking Christianity, but not really. What he wants to do is to defend the truth of God. And so he sees this problem of their, their objects of worship, that God is an object that they worship, um, little statues of worship, um, and that they don't really know him. There's a gap in their knowledge. So he says, um, therefore, uh, what you worship is unknown, 
This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So again, he's using, he knows who they are. He's using their poets against them in a sense. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, listen, your own poets recognize that we are the offspring of God, that we are distinct from every other creature in the world, and that if we are, we are an image of God, if we are his offspring, then why do you think if we have flesh, if we move and we think and we feel, why do you think it's appropriate then to picture God as an idol? And you'll notice that he's also attacking this whole idea that, that they think that they, they've got these, this pantheon of gods, but they don't even know all of the gods. They, they're concerned that they're going to leave one out. And so Paul's correcting him. He's saying there's one God. He's made everyone he has, he has placed their boundaries and, and arranged their times. He has given them understanding that they might come and seek him. Nevertheless, uh, he's not far from you. You can't make him into an idol. He doesn't dwell in temples made by hand. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will see you again or we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. So what you see Paul doing here is our apologetics are, he's trying to persuade people. He's using their own poets He's doing everything he can to bring them along. He's, he's trying to help them see the truth. It's not a simple debate, right? He's not just trying to win. He's not just trying to win. He's not standing up and saying, my system works better than your system. You're, you're dumb. I'm smart. Your gods are silly and weak and mine is large and strong. He's not doing any of that. He, he is quite clearly trying to be persuasive in what he's doing. And so when we talk about apologetics, it, sometimes it breaks down simply into debating people about things. And that just is, is a useless tactic. You, you're not trying to, to simply give the truth to people. You're trying to persuade them into it. Um, what debating was for were, were the Greek philosophers. They debated all the time. And to be honest, they were very clear. Um, just like if you, if you talk to Dave and, David and Marilyn, um, when you debate, you are given a topic, but you're not told which side you're going to debate. And so you just have to win the argument. You don't have to believe what you're saying at all. And that's how almost all the Greek rhetoricians were. You didn't have to believe what you were saying at all. You just needed to win the debate. We can't be like that. We've got more important things to do than just win debates. It's also not just a simple statement of facts. So when we talk about apologetics and we talk about evangelizing, we can't just state facts. 
okay? It's not just a debate, and it's not a simple statement of fact. So here's a picture of Michigan State and Ohio State, and presumably because none of these dudes are saved, given where they play football. Somebody said, I need to go and evangelize them, so he brought a sign, right? And, and he posted it there so that everyone could see. John 3.16, this happens all the time. My question is, is he evangelizing? Like, is, is he proclaiming the gospel? Let's even change it so it's not just a referent for the word, but what happens if he gets, like, five of his buddies and they stretch that out and they write on it, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have an everlasting life. It's not everything we'd want in a gospel presentation. It's pretty good, though. Would they be evangelizing? And, and again, I, I just I don't think that's quite evangelism. Like, at least it's not the evangelism that we find in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with this. I'm not saying that this is bad. I'm not saying that it's, it's evil or, or morally bankrupt. I, I'm simply saying is we're called to do more than that. It's, we don't just rely upon a simple statement of fact when we do evangelism. Now, you can do that at times, but that's not what we're called to do always. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And so he's saying, any avenue of persuasion that I can find to bring people into the faith, I'm going to use it. Now, obviously, that exists outside of doing something that's morally bankrupt, right? He's not going to be immoral and do this, but as far as he can push it, he will, he will attempt to persuade people to come in. Um, but we need to understand that evangelism and apologetics are not coterminous, okay? So you can do evangelism without doing apologetics. You can go out and just say the good news of Jesus Christ to people. And there's plenty of apologetics to be done that is not evangelism. We're going to talk about um, next week, and you'll see this in a moment, we're going to talk about the doctrine of God and, and who God is and proofs that he exists. You can get people to believe that God exists and that is not the gospel, okay? So you can do that good apologetic work and still not lead people to the Lord. So they're not exactly the same thing. So when we go back to our little circles, it's important to note that there is overlap here, right? So in our little sort of Venn diagram, there is overlap here. So there is type of persuasion and defense that evangelism and apologetics sort of exist together here. Um, not all of it is, is, is the defense. Um, we can persuade in other ways, but some of it is, and it's good then to have this kind of stuff down, to have some sort of um, armament to be able to both defend and to persuade other people. Lastly, I think we should study apologetics because it's meant to be encouraging to us. And I, I don't think that when people talk about apologetics, they talk about this quite enough. Like, it's meant to be an encouragement for your faith. Um, we, we have um, a lot to digest as Christians. And frankly, we are promised things that are difficult to buy into. And we, we can admit that, and it's okay. So no one in here likely has seen a resurrection. No one has experienced a resurrection. And yet our entire faith hangs on the resurrection. And, and during dark times in your life, during um, difficult times in your life, there, there can creep in doubts and bad theology and things like that. And so we need, 
sometimes defenses against that. We need to be reminded that Jesus Christ did indeed bodily rise from the grave. Sometimes we need those kinds of things. And, And even that God exists and he is near and he is close. And so apologetics can indeed encourage us often in that. So take 1 Corinthians 15, for instance. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul starts by noting that Jesus Christ he was, when Paul first showed up in Corinth, he said, I preached that Jesus Christ was risen from the grave. And now y'all are doubting that. And you need to understand that he appeared to, not just me, he appeared to 500 people, many of whom are still walking around the grounds of the earth. And you can ask them and they will tell you, yes, I saw Jesus Christ alive again. And he then turns and he says, not only have, have I immediate, I didn't make this up, but I was witnessing that to you immediately. And that was what was passed down to me, Right. And he says, people saw it, and it's central to having your, your sins forgiven. It's central to the hope that we have in the future. It's central to everything. And what he's engaging in here is defending the faith. He's setting the record straight, but he's not doing it for outsiders. He's not setting the record straight for those outside the church. He's doing it for those who are inside the church. It's not just apologetics. is isn't, isn't just useful to talk to rabid atheists and unbelievers out in the world, it's, it's good for us to be reminded of these things because we just sometimes need that encouragement. So we study apologetics because we want to learn how to defend the faith, because we want to persuade people, and because we, we ourselves need encouragement. Um, so any, any questions so far? We're okay. Kind of okay. We're actually a bit late, but I'll take questions. Okay, you lost your chance. So, what are the goals of apologetics? Typically, when you start a a study like this, what people are going to talk about are the types of apologetics, um, and they'll mention a couple of very, very large words like classic epistemology and uh, evidentialism and fideism and presuppositionalism, which all sounds like a lot of fun. Um, But... The problem with talking about types of apologetics is there isn't, like, one list of types. So you can, you can go to certain places. This is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. They, you can't quite read that, but that says that there are two types. There are essentially two types of apologetic. Um, Christian Treasury has three types. That's four types. Now we've got five. Now we've got ten. If things keep going, there's pretty soon they're going to have, like, 500 different types of apologetics, and it's just not terribly helpful. So we're not going to talk about types of apologetics. We're just simply going to talk about the goals of apologetics. What are we trying to do when we do apologetics? And there's basically three things we, we want to do under, under the goal, the major goal of persuading people into the faith. Okay, so that's the goal. And these are kind of the three means and, and ways in which we accomplish that. First, we want to talk about the existence of God. Um, there are Plenty. So when you, when you hear polls of people and the um, sociologists will note that nuns are on the rise in America, and these are people who don't believe in any particular religion, um, they don't have any religious affiliation, that doesn't mean that they don't believe in God. It just means that they don't have a particular religious affiliation. They're not specifically Christian. But there are plenty of agnostic people and plenty of atheistic people out there that, that just don't believe that there's enough proof for God um, or flat out say God cannot exist. And so these sorts of things are very helpful. And actually, there's a, been a lot of work done on them, and they're, it's 
a lot of those proofs are really good. And so that's kind of where we would start. We would start there. Um, but we also then need to turn to the reliability of the Bible. Simply proving to somebody that God exists is not leading them into the faith. We want to do more than that. And so we do want to point at the reliability of the Bible. After all, everything that we need people to understand and need people to believe comes back down to the authority of Scripture. It's incredibly important. If, if Scripture is not reliable, then, then we're going to have a hard time leading them in anything because they're going to say, hey, that's great for you, but it's not true for me. I don't know. You want to believe the Bible is true? That's fine, but I, I see no reason why I should. We, if we can help them to see the reliability of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, then we can move a long way in that direction. And lastly, one of the things that's helpful is to challenge other beliefs. Challenge what they think is true. Challenge how they get knowledge. Challenge the very basis of, of, of their lives. Um, because what we can find is, um, in some very deep ways, in some very simple ways, uh, their, beliefs are, are not, their beliefs have sincere and evident problems. And, and part, part of what we're going to do is each one of these things. So, Let's talk about, then, first, the existence of God. Um, we're going to go through this next week, but I just kind of want to just give you a, a, a brief introduction to these things. Um, typically, what we're going to do is classical proofs for God's existence. Um, Thomas Aquinas has five of them, um, and so we will talk about those five. Um, and he, he gets some of this from Aristotle. He gets everything from Aristotle. Um, but nevertheless, um, my famous or my favorite one in Anselm's um, ontological proof for God, we'll talk about that next week, which, which won't do anything for anybody in here, but I, it's just, I love it to death. So we're going to talk about it. Um, what, are other, what are other proofs that you've heard of? Or what are proofs that you've heard of? Like, could you give a, a, just a really quick example of somebody that says, I know that God exists because of this, which is outside of saying something like, I know that God exists because he lives in my heart, right? That doesn't work for other people quite as well. We're talking about a more rigorous type of proof from existence. Okay. Right. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? So um, we, we, we see in science that there's plenty of evidence that, that there was, literally in science, they, they will agree, there was nothing, and then boom, there was something. And the question is, well, why did that happen, right? And this is, this is one of the proofs that Aquinas brings out all that, that time ago, this was in the 12th century, um, and, and Aristotle, did this work way earlier. There, there has to be something that doesn't come into existence to bring everything else into existence. You can't, you can't just keep going backward forever. Um, so there's, there's an interesting bit on that. You can't, it's called an infinite regress. You can't go back forever. So that's one of them. Anybody else have any? I think Dylan had a similar response to saying that's about intelligent design. Yep. It's funny, I read a, oh, I don't have time for any of this. We'll talk about that more next week, so we'll go on. Um, so there's the existence of God. Then we were going to talk about, the, I, I just, we've got to get on other things, but, so I, you can't, I shouldn't have even asked. Um, we we want to we prove the reliability of Scripture, and frankly, what this is going to be is proofs from evidence, for the most part, right? So 
um, what, what we're actually doing is trying to, to get people to understand that, that Scripture, where we can prove that Scripture speaks accurately, it speaks accurately. And so we, we are going to use evidences to show that. Um, we can start by saying things like, if you've proven that God exists, if God exists and he created everything, then the major problem for the reliability of Scripture is typically miracles. And the answer, the, the first question that we would ask is, if God exists, is there any reason to reject out of hand miracles? Okay? And then we can ask a further question. If there is good reason to believe in the reports of miracles, is there any reason why you wouldn't believe in the reports of miracles? Okay? So this, we can go to somebody like David Hume, uh, the great skeptic uh, philosopher, and he comes up with a, a, a basically a proof for why we would reject all miracles. But I think that this kind of defeats his proof, and we'll get there when we get there. Um, but if there's good reason to believe the miracles, and, and for my money, the proof of the resurrection falls into this category. It's harder to believe in the opposite than it is to believe in the miracle. Um, so basically what we're arguing here is historical reliability. Um, the Bible speaks well. Um, without it, why would you believe anything else? So in other words, if, if Scripture cannot speak rightly to historical fact, if God cannot reveal history to people, why do we think that he can reveal invisible spiritual things to people? So John 3.12 and Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he's talked about the wind blowing where it will. You need to be um, born of water and spirit. He's told these things to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is as lost as a babe in the woods. <clears throat> and Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay? And it, it's not quite the same, but it, it's kind of the same. If, if we don't think that Scripture is going to get the earthly things right, why would we ever trust ourselves and soul and spirit to it? And so we, we want to do evidences to make sure that, that we believe in that. What are questions that people have about Scripture's reliability? What are, things, what are objections that they have when it comes to the reliability of Scripture? It's contradictions all over Scripture, right? It's true. I mean, it's not true, but people say that. So let me clarify for those listening at home. <laughs> yeah. Dan, Dan Brown. Um, thanks for that, brother. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's textual things, in other words, and, and other scholars haven't helped. Dan Brown's a hack, but there are other scholars who aren't hacks who have, who have still not helped that. So. To highlight versus other things, yeah. Right. And so just um, knowing how to interpret rightly what you see in front of you is helpful, right? We're not ancient Near Eastern people, and so we expect certain things out of the text that it just wasn't meant to do, and it can lead people to undermining the historical validity of the text when, you know, modern preoccupation with every single fact being correct or something like that is not necessary. And, and, and even in justification, it's about how you read, read Scripture. So we can talk about what, what kind of values do we want to have when we think through Scripture's reliability? The last thing um, is to talk about challenging um, of other beliefs, the beliefs that other people have. 
Um, I, will, I will go fairly quickly over this because uh, this gets fairly deep, fairly, the, the deep ends right away. So um, all epistemological systems are self-cycling. And that is a word salad that has very little nutritional value. But what it ends up meaning is that outside of God, you can't, you can't say I'm going to use this one thing to judge all truth because you can't judge that one thing by that one thing. Okay, so we're, I'll give you an example of what this means. And, and the thing that most people say is rationality, right? I, I don't believe things. I believe things that I can have proven are true. I'm a scientific sort of bloke, okay? The problem is you can't prove that rationality is the basis for truth by rationality. That's what we call begging the question. You can't say, I'm going to use rationality to prove that rationality is true. You can't do that. Anything that you're going to use to prove that rationality is true is actually your foundation. But then when you prove that foundation, you're just laying a different foundation. It's turtles all the way down, okay? It's just, it's nothingness. Um, and this comes up in a number of systems. When you remove God, you get this cycle of uncertainty, and it comes up in things like morality. Um, we're gonna, we'll talk about that here in just a second briefly. Uh, it comes up in psychology. I, I haven't heard a good refutation outside of some proposition, um, and I'm not a philosopher by profession, um, but I've heard some refutations of the problem of other minds, and outside of posing something that sounds a lot like God, there's just no way to do it. There's just, there's just no convincing way to do it. I, I need to believe that you people exist, but outside of having a God that exists, there's no real way to prove that you all aren't just weird fiction of my imagination. Um, you think I'd picture different people, but you're who I got. So, uh, and the same is true for logic and linguistics and math. They, these all get very, very circular in fun, fun ways that we can't talk about. So linguistics, for instance. We, we know that we can speak intelligibly about things, but we can't actually define almost anything, truly. Define chair for me. Anybody want to? I, I know you, I'm setting you up for failure, but some bold person just define what a chair is, right? It's got four legs and you sit on it, Okay. Well, that's a horse, so start to define it better. Well, it's, got a, it's, it's made of wood. Well, does it have to be made of wood? Does it, can it be made of other things, right? What about a throne that doesn't have four legs? It's just one big stone block. Isn't that a form of a chair? So we don't need to talk about legs. It's just something you sit on, but we wouldn't call couches or pews chairs. That's a little weird. Maybe we're getting closer, but you, you end up where you can't define anything. We don't even know how to define tree that, that makes it different from everything else that's kind of tree-like. We, we can't do that. The best that we can do is say, we're going to gather everything in existence together that we call a chair, and we're going to group it. And those, that's the definition of chair, the things that we put in the circle. That's how we define chair. And everything else isn't chair. Okay? That's really hard to do. <laughs> like, that's... Impossible to do unless you are God. Like, God can do that. And so, in linguistics, we run the same problem in logic and in math. Very famous problems in math come up this way. So, oh, rationality is my basis. Um, rationality is a problem that people, especially scientists, want to hold on to this. But rationality doesn't always get to the truth, right? Who's heard of spontaneous generation? 
okay? Spontaneous generation is the old idea that when somebody, for some silly reason, left meat sitting out on the counter, okay, you left a steak sitting on the counter and you didn't notice it for a couple of days. They didn't have refrigeration back in the day, so there's more of a reason to do this, but nevertheless, you didn't use it for a couple of days, and all of a sudden, it started to smell and stink, and it got smaller, and then what appeared on it? Mold, but other things in particular that moved, maggots and flies. And so spontaneous generation was the belief that maggots and flies actually generate, without any sort of outside impetus, from the meat, okay? The meat spontaneously generates it. By the way, the meat's also being dehydrated when this is happening. So it's losing weight, and then, then other things of mass are appearing, right? So the question is, was that an irrational belief to have? Now, you can falsify it, but it's very hard to look at somebody who would have existed in the 12th century and say that belief is completely and utterly irrational because you haven't done the right experiments yet. Like, you're just looking at what you see and you're, you're coming up with a perfectly rational explanation for what you see before you. You have, you have no way of knowing about atomic theory or, or, or fly reproduction. You don't, you don't know how these things work. So rationality is, is perfectly helpful in a number of ways, but it doesn't get you to the truth. On top of that, not only does it not get you to the truth, it's not the way the world works. Um, I was thinking of you, Mark, brother, when I was thinking of this. When you sold... Um, your business, right? Your, we'll call it retirement. <clears throat> you made up a list, maybe, of, at least in your head, a, a fake list of things that were good about selling it and bad about selling it, right? Like, like if I sell it, this is a pro, pro sell, con sell, and, and there's other weighty things over here, right? So you've got money on, on one side. If I keep off, uh, maybe I get more money. Selling it, you, you've, you have to consider time. You've got to consider all these things, right? time that you're going to spend with your wife, the time that you, you wouldn't be spending there, how you're going to handle money. You, you've, got a, you've got a fairly decent list of pros and cons. And you're a rational bloke, so you're going to sit down and you're going to look at that list and you're going to say, well, one thing is better than another. You know, they're not all going to be weighed the same, right? And you could come to a fairly rational decision doing that. But even there, rationality isn't the basis of what you're doing. You have to make judgments of what is good and what is better. You're always doing that, right? When somebody says, I'm hungry, what are you going to eat? Well, the basis of that decision isn't rationality. It's, it's just desire. The end, the end result is that rationality doesn't tell us how we do anything. It just, it just isn't. It's desire that tells us what to do. Rationality is only used to a certain end that is desired. We justify what we want we don't want what is reasonable. That's not how human beings work. It always ends up there. And again, we talked about rationality to prove rationality. And morality is the same way. What grounds or rules for morality? There's a, there's a lot of work that's been done here that says it's mostly just how we feel. When it comes to anybody, it's just how you feel. So people who want to argue that it's love or not hurting or harming other people, that's the basis. So a lot of the sexual immorality that exists today says, behind closed doors, so long as it's not hurting anybody, how can it be wrong? Listen, I'm going to tell you that that particular line of reasoning is some of the most shallow moral reasoning I've ever heard. Do you know what made a surgeon good? In the, this, this is a really more disgusting little section of apologetics and you thought you were getting into. What made a good surgeon in the, in the Civil War? Does anybody know? One thing. 
how fast you could, you could take limbs off and why. Because you'd get shot in the hand and the doctor would have to come and take the arm off or you would die. Now, there's a lot of harm being done there and a lot of pain that's being inflicted beyond the pain that that person already feels. But we would, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who would argue that that's wrong. And, and that happens all the time, right? Anyone who's gone through, Rick, you went through a lot of PT this past year. It's not like pleasant. You don't go there thinking, wow, I'm, I'm super pumped for all the pleasure I'm about to receive, right? You, you go to PT knowing that it's going to be painful. Like there's a lot of things that are good for you that cause harm and pain. It's not just, you know, Civil War days. It happens today all the time. Take my, my kids, even my older ones, got shots recently. It happens all the time. There are good, even just exercise. Exercise stinks, but it's good for you. It, it causes injury to your muscles. It's, it's harmful at times, but nevertheless, it's still good for you. So that mostly feeling stuff is just junk, and we'll talk more about that. There is no authority for your feelings anyway. Your feelings don't have any authority over me, and so it's not actually morality. You're just saying, this is what I like to have happen. Okay? And so when anyone talks about morality, these are things that you can put before them. We'll get to all of that in time. I just wanted to show you that there's a way to question what other people believe too. And to do it at a level that doesn't require sort of advanced degrees in anything, just asking questions and stuff. Okay. Um, ask questions back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, we'll get to that. So we got to move. Um, so what's going to happen? Uh, hopefully we can get through these things. Next week we're going to talk about the existence of God, which everyone in here buys into, but we're going to give you some sort of metaphysical proofs of that. Um, we're going to talk then about the reliability of Scripture and a lot of the things that have been mentioned. We're going to rehash those. We've done this before, but we will do it again because it's important for us and it's important for people out in the world. Um, specifically within that, we're going to talk about the resurrection, which gets its own little section because it is, it is literally the linchpin of everything. If you believe that the Bible is trustworthy, but you believe that it got the resurrection of Jesus wrong, you're in trouble. And so we, we can't just say that Scripture is generally right. We really need it to be right about the resurrection. So we're going to take a little bit more time on that. We'll talk about the problem of evil, which is its own little snarky problem. Um, we'll talk about other religions and other, um, not, just, not just dedicated religions, but other ways that people think through things, including for us, um, Darwinism is going to be an, an incredibly important part of that and how do we deal with evolutionists. Um, not to prove that evolution is wrong, to spend our time talking about the fossil record and the um, uh, other things that come up with stuff like that, but to, to say, like, what are the moral outcomes of believing that we exist only because we were more advanced than other people or other animals, right? And for the vast majority of that, the other outcomes are not, the, the actual moral outcomes are not pleasant, right? It includes racism, it includes eugenics, um, it includes a host of other things that you can't prove to me are wrong if you believe that evolution is true. You just, you can't. So we'll talk about that. And then um, the last week, I, concluding thoughts is basically junk I want to talk about that we didn't talk about before, but I didn't think that that was a good title. And so concluding thoughts is what we end up with. So uh, any questions on, on stuff today? Yes, sir. Or comments? <laughs> There's good reasons why I'm not doing that either. So uh, any, any comments or questions? Yes, Meredith.
yeah, yeah. And, and how much of these conversations, it's, you know, you might start talking about evolution, but really it's about how they don't believe that God loves them because they suffer so much. Right. All these right. They use other things to kind together. of, right. They, they, they compile things that make them, that, that okay their choices. It's, it's rationality yeah. piling stuff on it, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't get into, if you've got five minutes, right, you, you don't have much time. And so, you know, part of it is just um, knowing, knowing your audience, who you're talking to, things like that. You've got to be able to, like, if it, you know, launching into um, to deep philosophical things with people who um, probably don't have much education is not going to fly very far. Very few Goodwill Huntings are out there that are going to be able to, to follow that kind of thing. So, and it's, it's useless, right? We, and we don't need to do that. What we need to do is, pers- the goal is to persuade them to understand and to love Jesus Christ and, and to, to follow what is written in Scripture. So um, if that's our goal, then we don't need to win them over to our philosophical system. We need to win them over to Jesus and let him do the work. So, yeah. Okay, let's pray so that people can come in. Father, we are thankful for the day that you have given to us. We're thankful that you have given us um, not just hands to be used for your kingdom and in service, uh, not just uh, voices to lift up um, our praises and prayers to you, um, not just um, not just lungs that, that can preach and, and teach good things, but you have given us minds. You have given us things that can think and search and and plunder the, the wonders that you have given to us. There's a lot out there to think about, Father. Um, I pray that we are good about doing that. I pray that we're helpful in how we think through these things, that this is of service to the larger issue of bringing people into the kingdom, and that it encourages your people. Uh, we pray for your blessings on us. And on our service about to happen, I pray that you will be with us. Uh, keep distractions from your people. May your word um, be, be read, spoken. Uh, may it be preached and prayed over well. And may you be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.